Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Econoday Unplugged. It's Wednesday, 23rd of June 2020. Mark Pender is across the pond stateside and I'm Jeremy Hawkins here in London. It's an important week for economic news with a raft of June surveys providing an early look at how the major economies are recovering from the coronavirus pandemic. However, just as the soft data start to point in the right direction, the virus has begun to make headway again in a number of countries. With the Americas and India particularly badly affected, South Korea hit by a second wave, and both China and Germany forced to reintroduce localised lockdowns, the World Health Organization on Monday announced a record high for daily new cases globally. So there's little about the economic outlook that can be taken for granted at this stage. On which note then, Mark, recent US COVID-19 numbers haven't been too clever. What's the economic situation like? Uh, uh, Still trying to stabilize at lows outside of um, of, uh, employment and retail consumer spending uh, seems to have uh, picked up off those lows, those deep lows. Uh, But otherwise, uh, a lot of these indications are just pointing to not quite that V wall yet, uh, still maybe even contracting a little bit. But in any case, uh, at a stable, uh, you know, non-catastrophic jolting uh, pace. So that's, I guess, how, how I would uh, describe what is going on um, right now. Uh, one interesting thing we had this morning was new home sales. Uh, and uh, that I just want to point out is the star performer on the U.S. Uh, Canada's U.S. calendar. It came in at a 676,000 annual rate uh, in May, which was uh, well above expectations, and really almost back. It's actually better, far better than it was this time last year. But then the uh, the home sector in the U.S. just took off at the end of last year and came into this year looking like it was. Um, uh, just on fire, and then of course it cooled off. But still, now it's recovered. It's it's doing its V uh, side. But that isn't the the same story for resales. We uh, we had existing home sales on Monday, and they continue to uh, be weak. But sooner or later, uh, people if they buy new homes and these deals go through, they have to sell their old homes. So, so uh, there should be a pickup there. Uh, we also had home prices today uh, from the FHFA. And for this is data for April, and they have been slowing, but they're still appreciating. They were still appreciating back then. And the economists there are saying uh, from their data that it looks like the spring selling season, you know, was uh, muted, uh, but will uh, express itself uh, hopefully in the summer. So we may see kind of an unseasonal um, uh, pick a uh, move higher beyond uh, uh, the usual um, um, for, for what is usual for the months of, of the summer. But well, let me uh, ask about. Let me just then talk before going to you on all the PMIs that we had. Um, we also had the U.S. PMIs, and um, you know, the story is uh, still contracting, uh, but at a very uh, uh, limited rate right now, whether services or manufacturing. So, in, 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 and it's, I guess that's a plus, but there's certainly uh, nothing is on fire. So, but uh, can I ask you about France? France seems to have done better than anybody in these PMIs. Did you see that? Yes, it's interesting. I think uh, in many ways, France was also one of the biggest losers in terms of the uh, you know, the big town downturn we saw when the virus actually struck. But as you mentioned, we actually saw some surprisingly decent numbers coming out of the composite index. Um, we saw um, 
all the main measures. So for the composite index itself, so you know the proxy for GDP, the manufacturing PMI, and the services PMI, they all crept back over the 50% mark, or at least 50 mark, I should say, on an index basis. So essentially back into positive growth territory. This because, is for this is for Europe. Sorry, th th this is for France. So this is this is for the flash data for June. But um, well, for Europe as a whole, at least for Eurozone, uh, there we had the composite index, again, the flash one for June. That was in at 47.6. So still in negative territory, but not especially so. Um, and it was up from 30 point naught in the, fi in the final numbers as far as um, May's concerned. So it yeah, is a big improvement from that basis. But I think you know, in terms of Europe as a whole, and even you can almost put France in there, even if they're slightly into positive growth territory, you know, we have to remember that these figures are following a huge decline in output as far as April and May are concerned, and indeed at the end of March too. So all we're really talking about here is either at best stabilisation of GDP at an historically weak level, or perhaps in many cases a still a small decline. So I think you know, however you want to look at these numbers in terms of what they mean for second quarter, we're still looking at uh, you know, by far underway a record decline in European GDP pretty well right across the board as far as the EU members are concerned. In fact, realistically, I think about the only the only positives coming out of these flash PMIs was an improvement in business sentiment. And it does seem to be does seem to be the case that businesses, perhaps in terms of more than hope than expectation, are looking for you know, the ongoing easing of these lockdown restrictions and the ongoing you know, big support we're seeing coming out of government to some extent and certainly from the ECB as well. They're perhaps hoping, say, look, looking for that to lead to a general improvement in aggregate demand and hence supply as we go further forwards. Um, but I think it's going to be interesting looking forward. I think so these numbers per se were slightly stronger than expected. So they're not good in terms, they don't mean the economy is really rebounding strongly at all, but they were better than expected. But it's going to be interesting to see what happens next month if we see a continuation of you know, signs that there may be some second wave effect starting to come through. That, as I mentioned in the intro, that we've had a pocket, uh, an abattoir, a couple of uh, major districts in North Rhine-Westphalia in Germany. There's also been some clusters, a little bit of the UK and Wales, and there's some other you know, selected bits of Europe as well. If they're not brought under control very quickly, then I think you know, the risk is we see these, you know, the, the general improvement in sentiment starting to turn down as well. Now, tell us about sentiment. You had some, uh, uh, Europe had the consumer confidence flash on Monday. You had the Eve, Germany's EFO and France's business climate indicator, uh, that was this morning? And yep. it, so round it up for us. Okay, well, in terms of the confidence numbers for the EU, their, the EU Commission's their, their flash index they put out for June, that came in at, what, minus 14.7. So that's up, uh, what, four, four points from last time round, but still historically weak. So it kind of fits in with a pattern we've seen from the PMIs, whereby things are not as bad as they were in May, but they're still well below what you'd typically expect to see at this time of year. Um, in terms of um, Germany, obviously one of the big surveys there is the EFO index. Uh, we had that out earlier on this morning. Similar sort of story, really. We saw the headline sentiment index, which you'd normally expect to be run round about the 100 mark, something like that. That was down uh, 79.7 in May, jumped up to 86.2 as far as June's concerned. Um, again, a little bit stronger than the market expected. So taken at face value, it looks quite good, but 
bear in mind, historically still weak. But driving this, as referred to in terms of the PMIs, and the current component index was up, what, just less than a couple of points. The big improvement again came through expectations, which saw a fairly substantial increase, what about getting on for 11 points, which is a particularly large rise. So again, it's the case that you know, business is optimistic, perhaps about how Germany's handling the coronavirus, but it's a case of you know, optimism, which has yet to be realized in terms of what actually happens to economic activity. And on that base, of course, we'll, we'll still have to wait and see, see what actually happens. What, with what regards, you, sorry. I'm sorry. No, it's just rounded off. So with regards to France, the, the ANSI index, again, same stories as PMIs in terms of headline sentiments uh, for manufacturing is up at 77 from 71. The long run average there is 100. So, yes, it's it's well off its low, but by the same token, it's still also a good way short of you know, where you'd expect it to be. And we're not seeing any divergence uh, in Europe and the confidence. I guess the North American confidence is probably the same. Do you think the infection rates are, as we talk, um, they're up in the U.S. Uh, is this a sign of trouble? Will this be hurting? I think it's, it's expectations. Uh, it, how, how is it playing out in Europe right now? Well, it's certainly hitting, I think, as we've seen today, it's certainly hitting the, the U.S. stock market. And that in turn has fed through into what's going on in Europe. And as we speak, well, the likes of uh, what the German DAX is down, getting on for 3% or so. So I think it is very much still the case that you know, investors, by and large, are looking at the COVID numbers. And obviously, when you're looking at COVID and you're seeing how that's the implications of that for the global economy, you want to know what's happening out in the States. So I think although it hasn't, I don't think at this stage impacted, let's say, sentiment per se in Europe, I think you know, there's more and more talk in the media now about way the, the COVID numbers are increasing in what was it half of US states, I think now. Um, and there's a, a sense that, well, if this is going to be bad news for US, ultimately it's bad news for Europe as well. The good news in Europe at the moment, though, is that by and large, these COVID numbers are still heading down and the, the relaxation of a lockdowns, you know, effectively, you can say it's justified. But there is still very much this you know, general air of uncertainty that as people start going back to work, as they start shopping again, if indeed they do do that, you know, are they going to feel safe? And, and will it in, in itself induce you know, some kind of second wave in Europe as well? Would the second wave result in uh, openings, uh, I mean, closings? Uh, uh, we have here the Treasury Secretary Mnuchin saying, um, no, there's not going to be, he's repeated it again, that uh, there's just too much economic suffering, that that outbalances the, yeah. you know, the death it's, and misery. I mean, it, uh, you're right. It's difficult to get the balance right. And I think within Europe at this stage, I mean, I, I guess to a large extent, these governments are trying to downplay the risk of a, a second wave. Although it should be said as far as the UK is concerned, and we had a fairly significant easing being announced by uh, Prime Minister Johnson yesterday. And that's going to, when, once we get to, well, July the 4th, suitably enough, which has been now called UK Independence Day, um, they'll be opening up a lot of the um, the pubs and the cafes, um, some recreation areas, which have you know, been closed for such a long time now mm. um, but they've also said I mean the, the strong recommendation coming out of uh, the senior scientific and medical offices in the UK and it appears to be you know the government's happy to go along with it is if we do start to see you know the almost inevitable sort of a cluster rebounds you're going to see as people start going out more if that becomes more of a national um, issue then we're going to go back to lockdown again so the uk is very much taking uh, the hard line other bits and pieces of europe i think are, as you were saying stateside unless it gets really really bad then they're going to try and prevent prevent a lockdown simply because of the economic ramifications 
And just an odd question about, or a specific question about the UK. Are they going to have the um, uh, uh, social distancing in the pubs? Key question, particularly for pub goers such as myself. Um, they've reduced the social distancing now. Effectively, I mean, British um, brewing industry told the UK government if it remains at the current two meters uh, social distancing, then the, you know, a, a pub would simply be unable to make uh, sufficient. Uh, wouldn't be able to generate enough cash revenue to keep it afloat. So one reason I think why we've seen the announcement that this two metre rule as of July the 4th will be reduced to one metre is to try and get that part of the UK economy going again, because it's worth a multitude of billions to UK GDP. And it really was in big danger of wiping the whole sector out. What do the medical people say about a one metre well, it's the medical people who I must say have been very cautious as far as the UK is concerned. Um, they said effectively that the one metre rule is OK so long as, well, they call it a one metre plus. And by one metre plus, they expect additional precautions to be taken, such as, for example, if you go to the pub, you don't sit facing one another. You sit facing the other di- in the other direction or there's some kind of screen between you. Uh, most of the time you're wearing a mask and Yep, there'll be waitress service rather than UK typically used to go up to the bar to order drinks. And so there's a variety of measures they're trying to tack on to this one metre social distancing to try and reduce the risk to the equivalent of a two metre of two metre social distancing. Indeed, if you believe what the scientists are saying, they're saying that from reducing social distancing from two metre to one metre, it increased the risk tenfold of contracting coronavirus. And what about all the laughing and sing-alongs? Well, I suppose down in Wales, they've got very loud voices, so that's not going to be an issue. They'll be hearing through the valleys, wherever they are. Um, but yes, I'm still sure that the Britishers are pretty good at the sing-along after a few pints. So the gardens, those pubs with gardens, I'm sure we're doing outstandingly good business, um, particularly given the heat wave we have it at the moment. But in terms of those pubs which are really limited to, you know, to indoor drinking, it's going to be a very different environment. And indeed, you know, things like, um, you know, they're not allowed to hold uh, music and that kind of things now. Right. Um, so that's that's gone out the window at least as far as it's you know thing, things go at the moment. Um, what else shall I be mentioning from UK quickly then? Uh, Bank of England last week round them up. They increased quantitative easing pretty well as expected by 100 billion sterling. So that puts it at 745 billion now, which they expect to be used up by the end of the year. Now, that does imply a significant slowdown in the buying rate from what is currently, what, about 14 billion pounds or so a week of, uh, of asset purchases. But it's key to remember, you know, this is new QE. So although it may not be increasing QE at the same rate as it has been in the past, it's still adding to the stock of quantitative easing. And so it should to that extent be seen as a, a further significant loosening of policy. And one other thing I mentioned, worth mentioning, I think, from UK Bank of England, it's interesting how some of the, um, you know, some of the, the, the aspects of policy and the views of policy have been changed since Andrew Bailey became the, the new Bank of England governor. Previously, uh, Mark Carney has always suggested um, that there wouldn't be any uh, change in quantitative easing until such time as interest rates um, have reached one and a half percent. What Andrew Bailey say, is saying now, and um, that he thinks that the bank um, should start reducing its balance sheet before 
any kind of hike in interest rates. So very much putting the emphasis back now onto quantitative easing rather than interest rates as their central tool. And that, I think, has also helped to reduce some of the speculation that we see interest rates in the UK being reduced into negative territory. It does seem for the time being at least you know, any kind of additional moves on top of the one they announced last week is more likely to come through the quantitative easing side than it is through interest rates. So I think financial markets are starting to move more towards the idea that, well, perhaps this 0.1% bank rate will prove to be the bottom, albeit, of course, if we have big problems through coronavirus or whatever else, you never know, keep the option open. You know, Paula, a rate uh, monetary policy is uh, rates have kind of run out of gas yeah. as a sig for to signal change or to, to, to signal policy. Well, I'll tell you what, there's an interesting comment coming out of um, what Philip Lane the um, ECB's chief economist today, he effectively came out and said that to all intents and purposes, you know, playing around with the very short end of the curve has got actually no impact whatsoever now upon the longer end of the curve. So he's kind of intimating that, you know, they don't see much point in coming out and inducing interest rates for the ECB anymore because it's not going to have the desired effect uh, that they'd like upon longer term borrowing costs. Are so they talking about yield control over there? With the well, this is kind of suggests, well, at this stage, no, there's no yield control talk here. In fact, uh, the Bank of England governor last week um, intimated that they never touched on uh, yield curve control. And ECB, again, at least for the time being, on the back of Philip Lane's comments as well, it looks as they're not going anywhere down that route either. But is that something which is still a possibility Fed's, in terms of Fed policy? I, I guess, well, they're, they're talking about it, but it's, well, their buying is pretty well distributed uh, pretty evenly uh, across the curve. Um, uh, but, you know, it's not traditionally what they have ever uh, really tried to do, which was to control long rates. But it might, you know, be something that they can do. Um, where does the, the Bank of England buy, uh, uh, buy the gilts? Where is this? Well, they buy it straight from the secondary market. At this, at this point, they're still extremely keen to point out uh -huh. that they're not financing the public sector deficit per okay. se because they don't actually buy stuff, you know, the gilts directly it, from the it, bank. Is, is it on the short end? Is it short end of the yield curve? Well, they operate in the money markets, but in terms of gilt sale by effect, well, probably tend to concentrate more in sort of a 10-year area, so the benchmark oh, okay. area. But they can buy, you know, whatever they want, depending upon, you know, what's going on at the time. Uh -huh. Um, but certainly, I mean, it's got to the stage whereby you know, there, there is, I think, an underlying concern in the UK that notwithstanding the fact that to date UK guilt auctions have gone extremely well. So there hasn't been any problem about you know, private demand being out there. There is this worry that, you know, unless the bank increases its quantitative easing, so it gives itself room to go out and buy more gilts, there's the threat that you know, if something puts off the private sector buying community, then no one's going to buy the gilts and all of a sudden you can see gilt, gilt yields go through the roof. So I think part of the explanation for the increase in quantitative easing from the bank, and indeed I think the same applies for ECB, is you need you know, central bank buying to make sure that a longer end does stay down. Has the pound weakened on, on this? Oh, uh, the pound has been quite, it's been kind of all over the place at the moment. There's a lot going on with the pound. I mean, initially, um, last week, last week's announcement by the bank was taken moderately well on the grounds that the bank, although, I mean, it could have done more than 100 billion sterling on its QE. I think that was pretty well what was discounted in the market. But the bank itself is actually intimating it thinks perhaps second quarter GDP won't be as quite as bad as originally expected. And so that, again, was seen as being, oh, well, perhaps that reduces the likelihood of negative rates, so on and so forth. So the pound actually crept up a little bit on it. But since then, there's still a lot of concerns going on about what 
what's going to happen to Brexit. Um, the UK came out and effectively offered uh, a six month trading grace period uh, with the EU at the end of this year. So once this transition period has finished. Um, but the EU responded by saying, well, we're still going to impose full customs controls and checks on goods you know, from the beginning of 2021. So there's still you know, some big disagreements going on there. Recent noises coming out of the discussions last week were certainly much more positive. But there's still this underlying concern that you know, if we're going to get to the end of this year and um, there's no, no, no trade deal, that is definitely going to be bad news as far as the pound's concerned. I think also adding to it, you know, there's, there's a lot of talk here about, right, if we lose the EU, you know, the UK has been looking for trade deals with the states, it's been looking for trade deals with the Pacific Rim, uh, but Japan as well. And Japan came out, was it yesterday or back end of last week, effectively giving uh, Johnson and Co just six weeks to strike a, a post-Brexit trade deal, um, which would be, well, you have to agree, one of the fastest trade negotiations in histories. And since it would be the UK's uh, first trade deal in more than 40 years, it's kind of hard to see that going through. So I think, you know, there is still this big concern about what UK external trade is going to look like once we get to the end of this year. What are the ports looking like? Did they restrict uh, last year? There was building and they were narrowing the, the ports and things. That, are those restrictions uh, uh, still building? Well, up? they're gradually being eased because we still have um, semi-quarantine restrictions. I mean, trade flows are certainly going through. But again, one of the other issues for the UK at the moment is the fact that you know, if, if anyone wants to come into the UK, unless you have a special pass, you have to quarantine for two weeks. Mm. And that's already hitting you know, the UK um, travel side hugely, the, you know, the tourism side, which is very important to UK economy. That's being hit because people simply can't afford to take an extra two weeks you know, just, to, mm. just to get into the country in the first place. And indeed, there's currently talk as well, which isn't going too, down too well with the US, um, that when, they do, when we do start opening up our borders, um, it's possible that the US, uh, US visitors may not be allowed in due to the, you know, the recent spikes going two on. Weeks, the- two weeks or not? <laughs> yeah yeah so it's it's you know, it's still a very sort of complex world out there at the moment things are changing some more quickly than others but it's still not completely clear you know, how it's all going to pan out at the end of the day uh-huh. um so i'll also mention just to throw into the pot since we're talking about oh, what the heck's going on in terms of italy i haven't really talked much about Italy of late but um um a senator, uh, Paragoni, who's a former anti-establishment five-star member, if you remember that party, sure. uh-huh. um, he's apparently now she'll be launching a new anti-EU party um, in the middle of July. And the talk is that, um, well, prominently in terms of the group's logo, it's going to include the word Italexit. Makes a change. Italexit. So, I mean, how far this is going to go remains to be seen. But as we have talked about in the past, yeah, there has been a lot of bad feeling between the Italian government and the rest of the EU about how Italy has been treated as one of the hardest hit yeah, during the COVID-19 process. Mm-hmm. And it's led to this groundswell of opinion whereby, you know, that the anti-EU component of Italy, which has been relatively small in the past, has started to expand. And because it's still the case that the EU haven't been able to agree their um, EU new generation package, this 750 billion euro package, uh, that failed to go through during their talks last week, when we had again this this stickiness between the the so-called frugal four and the rest about whether it's going to be grants or whether it's going to be loans. Um, That's now been deferred. They'll be meeting again, but not 
until July the 17th. Yeah, there's this ongoing sense that, well, some parts of the European Union are not being looked after by the rest of the rest of the Union as well as they should do. And that could be exact, you know, just the sort of news that you know, the likes of Five Star would want to hear. And ultimately, mm-hmm. of course, not good news for, for the euro. It doesn't make you want to buy Italian bonds, does it? Well, I suppose you can take the well. I tell you, Italian bonds have improved so much since uh, the, um, the the EU Commission actually came out and announced this this package of proposals. I mean, the spreads narrowed very very sharply indeed there. And to be honest, it hasn't actually given that much back. Um, so I suppose if you take the view that this is all going to settle itself out and it'll be okay, then so long as you've got a half decent spread over likes of bonds and you go out and buy them. But if it turns out that you know, the shakeout from all this is that it increases the risk of Italy actually you know, pulling out of the eurozone, then you're going to see you know, bond spreads between BTBs in Italy and German bonds just go through the absolute roof. So one at least to keep on the back burner, if not on the front one. All right. What else have we got? Um, let's, while we're on the central banks, quick mention RBNZ. So the Kiwi central bank, no change in their cash rate this week. That stays at 0.25%. Uh, we didn't change their QE either. They got plenty of room under their ceiling of 60 billion uh, there to to run that right through the rest of this year anyway. That didn't come as a surprise to anyone with the, uh, the economy actually doing relatively well and COVID-19 apparently being contained locally. Um, so it looks as if... Uh, well, I don't, it might well turn out to be that the uh, the Kiwi dollar proves to be a relatively attractive buy at the moment, given how the economy appears to be you know, leading some of the recoveries globally um, coming out of this coronavirus. Um, anything else I should mention? I suppose just finish off on a gloomy note for anyone who believes forecasts of economic data these days. The IMF, International Monetary Fund, updated their world economic outlook today. They now expect global output to shrink by a record 4.9% in 2020. And that compares with their prediction of a 3% contraction uh, back in April time. So another couple of percentage points off that. Did they give anything for the second quarter? Um, the second quarter, all I saw was that they're talking about a loss, I think, of somewhere up to about 300 million jobs in the second quarter. Are they talking about jobs? Yeah, yeah I must have any, I'm, I've had a chance to go through all the, all the details of it. Yeah. You, so said, how, you said 300, globally. How many this jobs? Is, oh, this is globally, yeah. And a lot of it's also been coming out of your side. Yeah, yeah. In fact, on terms of your side, it's interesting. I thought the current call is on US, but uh, the, the, the IMF um, prediction now for 2020 is GDP down 8%. Does that sound wow. sort of yeah, typical? Sounds, yeah, but yeah, I guess I'm, I'm, we're looking more immediately at the second quarter. Yeah, uh, the sure. assumptions are we're going to get a rebound in the second half, infections or not, I guess. Um, but uh, we won't get uh, for, we won't get second quarter GDP for another month. Uh, the third revision to first quarter GDP will be out on uh, Thursday. Um, I think that was down in the five percent area. But uh, which was already pretty steep. I mean, Europe, Europe didn't go down 5% in the GDP, did it? Uh, Europe went down. Well, we went down. Uh, was it 3.2%? I think it was, Not if I bad, remember. Yeah. No, sorry, 3.8%. But that's on a quarter-on-quarter basis. So this, this isn't annualized U.S. terms. Uh-huh. So if you annualize that, you know, you're talking what 15% plus or so. So mm. it's uh, yeah, it's a lousy. Yeah, it's a horrible number. Oh. Um, and again, it's, it's, and I suppose that's reflecting the IMF. I'm there talking about Eurozone GDP contracting 10% this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they got the likes of Japan down at 58 and China actually growing, but by their standards, hardly at all, just, just 1%. Um, but of course, you know, no one, that, it all depends upon how the COVID-19 pans out. So mm-hmm. you either want to put faith in these numbers or you don't. 
Okay, then. Anything else or anything else? I think we're good, yeah. No, okay. Yeah, I think we're good as well. So, best part of 85 degrees Fahrenheit in London today. So, it's a glorious day out there. Not the time to be doing a podcast. Right. So, that's it for today, then. Uh, but panic not. We will be back next week. But in the meantime, remember, you can keep on top of all the key data and events in Economy's global economic calendar. From Mark and myself, thanks as always for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Bye for now.